Hey, Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. Hallelujah. Amen. Hey, welcome. My name is Pastor Evan. I'm the pastor here at Liberty Northeast. I am a Northeast Philly kid, born and raised, grew up in Longcrest, now live in Somerton, which as, when I lived in Longcrest, I referred to Somerton as the suburbs, but now I live there. So you can take that for what it is. Um, but thank you so much for being here on Easter Sunday, no less. We're thankful that you're here, whether you're new, you're visiting with us today, you've been coming for a while, or you're watching online. We're thankful that you joined us today. I hope that as we've, we just concluded a series in the book of Revelation, I hope as we go into today's sermon, uh, it's not a series, we're just going to talk about the resurrection because that's a pretty important moment in the history of the world. It's the most important moment in the history of the world, which I'll talk about in a, in a second here. But we're going to enter a new series called Called Out Ones next week. And Called Out Ones, we're going to talk about in our year of devotion which we talked about on the first weekend of January, the year of devotion, we're going to talk about not necessarily what Christians believe, but what, how our beliefs affect the way we behave. And the first century Christians, the second century Christians, third century Christians were known for certain things. They behave differently than the society around them. And you would think it would be things like they went to church every Sunday, they read their Bibles, and they prayed, and they, kind of, they were kind of known for that. They also were kind of known that people said they were cannibals because they kept talking about drinking Jesus' blood and eating his body. That was weird. That was a, that was a, a PR nightmare, I'm sure. But they were known for five things in particular in the way they behaved. Number one, they were multi-ethnic. In a world where ethnicities, and this could just apply to 21st century too, where we gather with people of the same ethnicity, the first century church, second century church, the early church, they were multi-ethnic. They were this new thing, this new body, this new, new thing that was happening where God was bringing the nations of the world together under the banner of Jesus Christ. And they also were hospitable to the poor and the marginalized. Nobody wanted to deal with the poor. They wanted to toss them aside, and the marginalized wanted to toss them aside. But Christians took care of them. They also are people of incredible forgiveness. For incredible forgiveness, because Jesus forgave them, they forgave people. And they also were anti-abortion. When people cast off their babies and left them to die, Christians went around and collected them and adopted them. And they were traditional in terms of sexuality. Our movement, our sexual revolution that's happening right now is a revolution, but it's happened before. And the first century Christians dealt with it, and they were different. And so we're going to go through all those things, but that's for next week. I would like to talk about yesterday. Yesterday, we had an Easter egg hunt. We had uh, 2,500 eggs out there. We had about 80 kids come. We had... Uh, we basically said, hey, everybody gets 30 eggs. I think some people took more than 30 eggs, but 80 kids came. We had over 100 people here. It was a great way to reach out to the community, let them know that Jesus loves them and cares about them, and we were happy to do it. And uh, you can see some pictures up here on the screen. The Easter Bunny was also there. He made an appearance. He's also, I'm also married to the Easter Bunny. It's my wife who is playing uh, piano here this morning. So she did a great job. She not only plays piano, and she's beautiful, but she's also a great Easter bunny. So who knew? I didn't know that when we got married. So 
Anyway, so that was unexpected, and I think that when we transition now into the sermon, we think about things that are unexpected. Has there any, ever been a moment in your life where something unexpected happened, so much so that it shocked you and it scared you, it alarmed you, it, you grabbed your chest, right, that kind of like uh, Sanford and Sons moment, like, I'm coming, Elizabeth, like that kind of attitude, right, some of you don't know what I'm talking about. Watch TV land for long enough, and eventually a Sanford and Son episode will come up. But something that shocked you, it knocked you back, it knocked you off your feet. Or maybe you're driving home from church today, and you drove, you drove, you've done this drive like a hundred times, and as you near home, you start to go on autopilot. Has anybody had that experience before? Raise your hands where you start to go on autopilot. All right, great. Two of you had this experience. But we had, you had, get into autopilot, and all of a sudden you come up to that bridge you've passed a hundred thousand times, and all of a sudden the bridge is out, or there's a sinkhole. Or maybe let's just put more positively, like just imagine for a second you come up to this huge pile of cash that spans across both roads, and the only way you're going to get through that cash is if you stop your car and start shoveling all of the cash in the back of your car, and you're putting it on top of your kids, and your kids just put your hands out and just throwing it in there. That would be shocking. That would be unexpected. It would feel surreal, and you would pinch yourself. He's like, is this actually happening? Is this real? Did this really happen? And the women who come in Mark 16 saw Jesus die and laid into the tomb in the tomb in Mark 15. They saw on Friday that Jesus died. He's buried, he's put in a tomb. But then they come to the tomb to anoint his body, which is what they did back in the day, to prepare for burial. And Jesus isn't there. It's unexpected. See, I think so many of us have heard this story. If you have a church background, you've heard this story a thousand times, and it just doesn't hit you the same way anymore. Why is that? Are you taking the resurrection for granted? But if this ever happened to you, right? You walk up to a tomb, you thought somebody was dead, and then you get there, and you are told by an angel, they're not here. They've been risen. See, the male disciples are gone. They're hiding. They're nowhere to be found. For as courageous as Peter claims to be, he's nowhere. But the female disciples show up and they head to the tomb. And when they get to the tomb, they hear that Jesus isn't here. He has risen. And then they run away, afraid. Why? It's unexpected. They never thought this was going to happen. And there's a lot of debate about the end of Mark. Was, is the end of Mark lost or was this intentional, right? If you have maybe a King James Version Bible at home, uh, you'll see there's uh, verse 9 and it goes for several other verses. Uh, but that's not part of the original Greek. In the original Greek, the manuscripts that we have, it ends at verse 8. Was it lost or was it intentional? And frankly, we don't know, but I lean towards it being intentional, that Mark, all this time in his gospel, what he wanted people to see is every time Jesus told his disciples to do something, they abandon him. They leave him. They don't pull it off. And they don't believe. Time and time again. There's only one moment in Mark where somebody really shows belief, and that's Peter. And again, he is nowhere to be found. So no matter what you believe about the ending of Mark, if it's the first time you've heard this story, it's the one millionth time you've heard this story, I don't want you to miss this point. Jesus is risen. 
He goes before us into the world, and he invites you to follow him. So I want to talk about a savior to consider, an invitation to answer, and a decision to make. We have to consider this savior. He offers us an invitation, and we have to make a decision about him. So first, a savior to consider. So let's take it back to the top of Mark chapter 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And as I said, this is an ancient tradition that's what they did to prepare bodies for burial. What's surprising about this moment is that they're already too late. It's been three days if Jesus is dead, his body is going to stink. It's already starting to decompose. But what's interesting about what Mark does here, everybody reading this is going, they're already too late to do this. But they're not late because his body's decomposing. They're late because he's not there anymore. And, and very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? See, the, the tombs were these huge tombs, and they put a ton of bodies in them, and there was a huge stone that was rolled in front, and it needed some people, some powerful, like strong guys to move the stone. So the women were kind of concerned here. What's going to happen? They're not, like, let's enter the story here. They're not expecting Jesus to be born. I'm uh, sorry, Jesus to be risen. They're not expecting it at all. They're saying, who's going to open the tomb? And looking up, they saw the, tomb, the stone had been rolled back. Who's going to roll back the stone? It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side. This is an angel. He's dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed, as you and I would be too. And he said to them, listen, do not be alarmed. The most popular command in the Bible is do not be afraid. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. The risen Savior asks you to consider him. The women go to the tomb to anoint Jesus' body with spices, prepare him for burial. And when they arrive, they are alarmed. This is unexpected. Jesus rose from the dead. See, a dead Messiah is a failed Messiah. That happened thousands of times. People came and they said, I'm the Messiah. I'm here to bring God's kingdom. Just like Jesus said, and they died. And everybody expects that when you die, you're dead. So as much as they hoped Jesus was going to redeem Israel, like the, the men on the road to Emmaus say to the resurrected Jesus, they hoped he was going to redeem Israel, and they hoped that he would bring about God's kingdom as, on earth as it is in heaven. Their hopes at this point are completely dashed. It's not going to happen. A dead Messiah is a failed Messiah. Dead people are dead. And you don't need to know that to be like a 21st century scientist to know dead people don't rise from the dead. They don't come back to life. So anybody who claims, well, in the first century they believed that nonsense, no, they didn't. You expect that when your friend died or somebody you love died, that they stayed dead. Maybe you would see them again one day in the resurrection. The Jews believe that. But that was a future thing. One person in the middle of history, nobody expected that. Their theology didn't set them up for this. Their worldview didn't set them up for this. Their science didn't set them up for this. This is completely shocking. They're alarmed. So let's not beat up the women 
because they run away, you would too. You would be shocked because this event, the resurrection, it's unexpected. Everything about their lives and their world changes in this moment. Everything they thought they knew is altered and their lives are reoriented around this event. See, scholars have pointed out that Jesus' resurrection is the only logical explanation for why Christianity grew so quickly in the first several centuries. It's the only logical explanation, right? Christians are being killed, they're being tortured, they're being ripped apart by lions in the Roman Colosseum, and yet Christianity grew. Why? Nobody wants to sign up for that. Like, we have people, we have a hard time signing up to wear masks at church. But Christians are being ripped apart, and Christianity's growing. Why? The only logical explanation is something happened that day. Something happened that made them say, I will put my life on the line. I'll put my family's lives on the line, and I will live a life oriented around this event. The only logical explanation is that Jesus actually rose from the dead. It can't be a hallucination. People had hallucinations. It can't be a dream. People had dreams. Everybody wakes up from the dream and says, okay, I guess that person's still dead. They don't say, how about I get crucified upside down for this person? Nobody does that. You wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it. Unless something happened that day. Unless 2,000 years ago, something actually happened. See, the apostles who are hiding in Mark 16 are boldly taking the message of Jesus across the globe in the book of Acts. Why? Something happened. Because when they considered the risen Jesus, every question that they had about the world and their lives is altered by this moment. They reoriented their whole lives around the risen Savior. Esau Macaulay, he's an African-American scholar, and he talks about how he grew up watching Christians in the South fall into white supremacy. And he had people in his neighborhood ask him to join the nation of Islam, and that happens in Philadelphia too. People reach out to African-Americans, ask them to join the nation of Islam as a way to deal and respond to white supremacy. And Esau Macaulay says this, and I thought this was fascinating. It's from his book, Reading While Black. He said, I did not join the nation of Islam for a variety of reasons. Even when I most despaired of a hopeful future for African Americans in this country. Why? I came to believe we must ask questions in their proper order. The fundamental question, listen to this, was whether or not Christianity was true. Whether or not the Christian story was true, I believe that the, empty to, the tomb was empty on the third day. White supremacy, even when practiced by Christians, cannot overcome the fact of the resurrection. See, what Esau Macaulay saw was his black and brown friends cast off Christianity because he saw, they saw Christians commit the sin of white supremacy, but he realized that his friends were asking the questions out of order. He's saying the risen Savior must be considered first, and then we'll address the problems of the world, like white supremacy. 
See, so often you and I, we ask the questions out of order. We get them backwards. We ask, what are my dreams and how can I achieve them? And if there's space for Jesus, then I'll work him in. So many of us say, we look at the problems of the world and our own problems, and we say, how can I fix those? And if we believe Jesus might be an adequate situation, we say, yeah, we'll we'll try him out. We'll consider him then. Or we say, I want that car. I want that house. I want that family. I want that kind of career. I want that relationship. And then we ask, how can I get that? And then say, well, maybe after I get those things, then I'll work Jesus in. And so many of us also try to get them at the same time, too, but more often than not, we get the question backwards. I had a friend who was offered a new job so that he would move up into his career, but every time he was offered a new job to move up in his career, when it would require him to move, he would always look at the churches in the area first before he accepted the job. He, wanted to, he said, I want to make sure I'm going to be spiritually cared for, that my family's going to be spiritually cared for before I take a job that's going to move me up into my career, higher in my career. See, that's one way to take, consider the risen Christ first. See, Jesus doesn't want to be considered second in your life. He wants to be considered first. So we must ask questions about our lives and our world after we've considered the resurrected Jesus. Jesus wants your life to be completely reoriented around him. He wants your life completely reoriented around this moment, this moment where the women go to the tomb and he's not there. He doesn't want to be considered second in your life. So is your life oriented around the risen Jesus, or is the risen Jesus oriented around your life? Do you see the difference? Is Jesus considered first before you make decisions, or do you consider decisions, and then you'll see if Jesus can fit into that? Many of us try to squeeze Jesus into our plans. Many of us try to squeeze Jesus into our dreams, but do you consider Jesus first before you take a job? Or plan a trip? Or do your budget? Or raise a family? Do you ask, before I accept this job, where will I go to church if I do? Or... Before I take this job, before I plan out my year, how many Sundays or home meetings will I miss? Or how can I honor God with my money before I figure out how much I spend on eating out or clothing? Or does my life reflect to my children that I prioritize Jesus over other things like the snooze button or my job or my dreams or my dreams for them? I'm not trying to beat you up. These are all questions I've had to ask myself. And frankly, I get it backwards all the time. I always consider Jesus second. Why? Because I'm sinful. See, the reason we do that, though, the reason I do that, the reason you do that, is because you like to be the king of your life. 
See, if we consider the risen Jesus first, and if Jesus rose from the dead, if that is actually true, there's nothing else to think about. Like, if Jesus actually rose from the dead, actually did, then there's no other questions to be asked first. Do I believe that happened or do I not? And if that did happen, Jesus is king over the universe, which means he's king over my life, which means he can do, he can ask me to do whatever he wants me to do. But I don't like that. Because I want to build my kingdom, not his. I want to be king. I don't want him to be king. Jesus, could you just scooch over on the throne of the cosmos so I could be the king over my life and I'll figure things out because everybody knows, ask my wife, ask my kids, when Evan is in charge, things work out smoothly all the time. See, if you ask the questions out of order, you will do everything you can to make sure you are the king over your life. So your motives will always be selfish because it will always be about you as king, and it will always be about building your kingdom. And your kingdom could be your career, your family, your dreams, whatever it is. It will always be about you. But what happens when you make yourself king, but no one wants to be your subjects? What happens? Like parents know this. What happens when you're the king of your life and you're the king of everyone around you and all of a sudden your subjects throw a temper tantrum? They don't care. Or your boss, he doesn't care if you're king. She doesn't care if you think you're the king. Do not care at all. The guy who cut you off on the road to church, he doesn't care. He doesn't want to be your subject. He's not going to bow down to you. Why? Because your kids want to be the king too. The guy in the road wants to be the king too. Your boss wants to be the king too. We all want to be king. And if no one wants to be your subjects and they all want to be king, there's no way you're going to build your kingdom. There's no way you're going to build your career. There's no way you're going to build your dreams. There's no way you're going to move up in your job. There's no way you're going to get that promotion. Why? Because everybody else is doing the same thing. Everyone's fighting to be king. So our neighborhoods, our city, our country, our world are all messed up because everyone's looking out for themselves, including you, including me. So you get angry and you become resentful or I become impatient. See, the reason you're angry at the guy who cut you off on 95 is because he hasn't submitted to my rule as king of I-95. I am the king of I-95, and I'm in the left lane, and I'm driving 15 miles per hour over the speed limit already, bro. How dare you cut me off? Why you get angry at that guy? Because you think you're the king. Or the reason you're resentful towards the person at work who got promoted over you is because your boss didn't recognize that you were wearing the crown. Like if my boss saw that I was wearing the crown, she would have promoted me. Not that guy. I trained that guy for crying out loud. And so you become resentful and bitter towards your boss because how come he didn't see that? How come she didn't see that? 
And the reason why you're impatient with your kids is because they keep asking you to do the same thing you asked Jesus to do, just scooch on over so I can have a seat on the throne. The reason you're angry, resentful, or impatient with a pandemic is because you can't get on with being king and building your kingdom. Think about it. I know. I get upset too. So you live your life seeking every opportunity to exert your power. So whenever someone confronts you or you get defensive and you get frustrated, if they disagree with you, you get offended. Why? Because I'm king. So I've given my edict to the whole land through my Facebook posts of opinions. And if people don't get it, unfriend. Or if they dare to respond to something you put out on the internet and they say, I actually disagree with that and here's facts why, ah, unfriend. And so what you do is you cut people off from your life because they won't submit to you. And I surround myself with yes men. I listen only to people in my echo chamber who are going to tell me everything I already wanted to hear. But truthfully, those relationships, yes men and echo chambers, are superficial relationships. And so you eventually become lonely. And your attempts to exert power just make you feel crushed, exhausted, and lost. And what's left of your kingship and your kingdom at that point? Nothing. You're just a huge failure. And I know you came to church for me to tell you that. Like, thanks, Easter Sunday. Wearing a nice shirt today, Evan. Give me some credit. Thanks for telling me I'm a failure. But there's more. Because Jesus gives an invitation to answer. Listen to what Jesus says in verse... Oh, sorry, not Jesus, what Jesus says, but hear what Mark says as he records what the angel says in verse 7 of chapter 16. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. See, the risen Savior invites us to follow him. I hate starting over. I hate it like so much. Like I will plan my route to things where I don't have to cross the same street. So it's just like one circle back home. Like I hate putting together an Ikea bookshelf and then getting to the end. and There's like one screw and you're like, oh, no. Where does this go? My kids inevitably will be climbing on this bookshelf, so this is not safe. And so I have to start again and go back to step number one and make sure I got all the screws in the right place just to find out that they gave me an extra screw for some reason, which no company does. And they gave me that weird Allen wrench thing, which I hate. Why do we? Anyway, moving on. But I hate going back to the beginning. But Jesus doesn't mind starting again. He doesn't. Jesus does not care to start again. See, if you notice, the women are told to go tell the disciples, those who abandon him, who are currently in hiding. But he points out one person in particular. Who is that? Peter. Why? See, if you know anything about Peter, Peter's this really enthusiastic guy. If you, if he, he doesn't do, he doesn't think, he just does. He just speaks out. Every time he's like Andy Dwyer from Parks and Rec, he just does it. Like, yeah, everybody loves that guy. 
But at the time of the crucifixion, when things got really hard and Jesus was being tried and tortured, when Jesus needed Peter the most, he needed somebody to stand by him. Peter denied Jesus three times and ran away. But tradition tells us that Peter helped Mark write his gospel. So when it comes to the resurrection, Peter remembers that the angel specifically named him. Peter remembers that the angel said, tell Peter. Why is that a big deal? Why does Peter want Mark to point that out? Because Jesus doesn't abandon those who fail him, but invites them to start again. Are you crushed, exhausted, lost? Are you a failure? Has your kingdom been a complete disaster? Jesus says, follow me. No matter how good or how bad you've been up to this point, follow me. See, Jesus isn't in love with some future version of you. He's in love with you. He's not inviting future Evan to follow him. He's inviting Evan, April 4th, 2021, to follow him with all my bumps and bruises. And he says, okay, I see your failure. I see that you've asked questions out of order. I see your failed kingship. I see your failed kingdom. How about we start again, Evan? How about we start again? See, no matter matter how badly you fail, no matter how much you haven't reoriented your life around the risen Savior at this point, Jesus says to you, hey, can we start again? See, Jesus died and rose again for guys like Peter. He takes failures and he makes them forgiven, which is good because we're all failures. See, Jesus went to the cross so that failures like you and me can be forgiven. And his resurrection gives us a chance to start again. All we have to do is admit that we failed. And we need Jesus, just like Peter admits. And he tells Mark, write it down. And we put our faith and trust in Jesus and we receive his forgiveness and his redemption. And then he invites us, forgiven failures, to follow him. And Jesus always goes before you. And he asks you to follow him. Just like he says, the angel says to the women, he's gone before you. And he reminds us that we can trust him, right? The angel says, just as he told you, Jesus always backs up what he says. See, if he says, reorient your life around me and you'll find true life, then it will happen. If he says, reorient your life around me and I'll give you life to the fullest, then it will happen. If he says, give up your kingship and your kingdom for mine and it will come and you'll make the world a better place along with me and it'll make your life better and you're going to be more happy and joyful and full of gratitude and grace and forgiveness and love, then it will happen. It may not happen the way you expect it to happen. It may not happen the way you think, but it will happen. And even if that means today you have to start over, even if that means you tried time and time again, you've blown it, you've blown it, you've blown it, like the disciples, like the women, like Peter. Jesus says, I'm offering you the invitation again. Will you follow him? And when you do that, 
You're full of gratitude. Why? Because Jesus takes walking failures. And he forgives them and he invites them to follow him. So I'm full of gratitude because you know what? That's who I am. And because I receive grace, I start showing grace to other people who fail too. Like when your kids fail, if you realize you're a forgiven failure, you'll forgive those failures. If your boss fails you because you're a forgiven failure, you'll forgive that failure. All disappointments, all failures by other people, you'll be quick to forgive. And also it brings me great relief because what Jesus says will happen. Like when Jesus says something will happen, it will happen. All I need to do is trust him. So we have a decision to make. And when we look at verse 8, it says, They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. That's what David did with the news. What will you do with the news of Jesus? What will you do with the news that something happened 2,000 years ago, that Jesus rose from the dead? What are you going to do with that news? See, give the risen Savior a shot. Give Jesus a shot. Consider him first. Actually try in your life. Consider him first and answer his invitation. And the, the gospel says they went out and they did what? They said nothing. The angel's instructions were to go and tell, but they ran away afraid. See, for some of us, no matter how good of an argument I make today, you won't take this seriously. You'll find some way to justify running away. An angel and an empty tomb won't convince you. So why would I? But we do know that the women did tell. The other gospels tell us that. First Corinthians tells us that. And you're in Philadelphia in the 21st century, and you're hearing about it. So we know they did go and tell. Why? Because they reoriented their whole lives around the risen Jesus. See, some of you are realizing today that you need to take real examination of your life. Is my life oriented around Jesus? Or is Jesus oriented around my life? And for those of us who are having our lives oriented around the risen Jesus, we need to tell other people about this. And if you're new, you're visiting today, watching online, or you're here, I want to invite you to join us as we try to spread this message to our neighborhood, to our city, and to our world. Because Jesus is risen, and he goes before you into the world, and he invites you, a forgiven failure, to follow him. Let's pray. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus and you, Jesus has offered you an invitation and you've never really taken it, I just want to give you an opportunity to silently accept that invitation. Wherever you are, here or at home. And all you have to do is admit that you failed just like Peter did and say, Jesus, I failed. I've blown it. I've messed up. My kingship and my kingdom is not going well at all. 
And even when I think it's going well, it's really not. Forgive me. I trust you. I put my faith in you. Be the king over my life and help me build your kingdom. And Heavenly Father, for the rest of us, we ask that you would remind us of that, the love that Jesus has for us, that the risen Jesus did rise from the dead and he invites us to follow him. Thank you for that because I am a major failure. But you forgive me and you love me just like you forgive and love everyone here who puts their faith and trust in you. As we come to the table, as we confess our sins and come to the table, help us remember that Jesus died for us. Died for guys like Peter. Died for guys like Evan. Died for people like people in this room. We thank you for him. And it's his name we pray, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, now and forever. Amen.